Misfits, welcome to the Misfit Heroes Podcast. My name is Chris, and together we are going on a journey. Misfits, I don't like talking about death. Does anyone? That might have came out a little weird. It's something that'll happen to everybody listening to this podcast. How's that for even my listeners in existential crisis? Misfits, unfortunately, there's a new leader in the death game, and it's not who you think it is. In 2022, fentanyl overdose became the number one cause of death in adults aged 18 to 45, surpassing suicide, auto accidents, gun violence, and even COVID-19. So why does nobody hear about this? I watched an hour of the news today, and I heard about monkeypox, COVID, and our economy going into recession. And not once did they mention that since 2019, nearly 175 people per day die from fentanyl overdose. We have a drug war in America that criminals seem to be thriving in, while communities, families, and children seem to be tossed by the wayside. And our solution for drug users is to imprison, persecute, and remove them from society. It gets even worse when children are involved. So, what are we to do? I mean, criminals are going to be criminals, right? They're breaking the law, and they should just know better, right? Well, that's what Christina Dent used to think. As a mother, a Christian from Mississippi, and a foster parent, she once believed the children that she was fostering from parents jailed with drug charges were reckless, careless, and abandoning their children. And then she started meeting the mothers of these children that she was fostering, hearing their stories, and her life was forever changed. Now, she runs a nonprofit called End It For Good that aims to end the drug war and come with attainable strategies to truly end drug addiction in this country before it starts using compassion instead of compulsion. Misfits, this story is so impactful that I had to turn it into a two-part series. So be sure to come back next time for part two in two weeks. Let's end it for good, Misfits. Please welcome Christina Dent. Playing the Misfit Heroes podcast. Christina, welcome to the Misfit Heroes podcast. I am very excited to talk to you. You know, I watched a TED Talk of yours, and I got to say, yours is one of my favorite TED Talks. Ah, thanks. Yeah, no worries. Misfits, if you haven't seen Christina's TED Talk, it deals with the topic of the drug war, but it deals with it from a side that you don't normally hear from, which is the modern Christian believer. Before we get started into everything that you're doing with your nonprofit and your organization and all of that stuff, let's get some more info about you. Christina, what was your what was your childhood and background like? How, how'd you grow up? I mean, give us a little backstory towards Christina Dent. Definitely never thought I would be doing what I'm doing today. So, <laughs> and I had the Damascus Road experience later on. But um, in my childhood, so I'm a born and raised Mississippian and I was homeschooled kindergarten through high school, like back in the early days when homeschooling was this cutting edge movement in the 80s. Um, and I, I grew up in a wonderful Christian home. Uh, I grew up in a conservative home and community. I remember sitting in church as a child. And it was like the Sunday before an election or something like that. And they were just praying for, you know, the election, you know, that God's will would be done or whatever. Um, And I remember sitting there looking around thinking, I don't understand why they're not just like handing out little lists of who we're supposed to vote for, because, you know, everyone (laughs) votes for the same people, surely all Christians. So uh, it was just, that was my community was just a very, um, a lot of people that, that kind of saw the world in very similar ways. And I didn't have a lot of uh, exposure to lots of different 
ways of thinking. Um, but I had a wonderful childhood. My parents were like super maverick, like total misfit. This is like a great term. Um, they did the homeschooling <laughs> thing. My mom baked all of our bread from scratch, whole wheat bread my entire life, like just very committed to healthy eating, um, to just, you know, we had one car for most of my childhood, just like a very kind of countercultural way of growing up. Um, which at the time I generally did not like, you know, I just wanted to fit in. I just wanted to like, why can't we just, you know, eat, uh, you know, chips from Doritos and, you know, (laughs) ice cream and, you know, Coke, uh, things like that. We never bought soft drinks. You know, my mom thought that was, you know, that's just trash. Um, so it was just kind of an interesting childhood. Uh, now I look back at that and say, uh, what a gift, because I don't think I would be doing the things I'm doing now if I hadn't seen that you can go against the flow and it doesn't kill you. Um, and sometimes it actually gives you gifts that you might not have gotten otherwise. Um, so I don't go against the flow nearly as much as my parents did in terms of just kind of Countercultural uh, ness, but the work that I do is definitely something that I see as sort of this outworking of them always encouraging us. I'm the youngest of four; I have three older brothers. Always encouraging us to kind of like dig deeper. Like, don't just do something because the crowd's doing it. Don't just sign on to something because everyone else is. Like, you got to think for yourself. You got to um, put it up against, particularly up against uh, God's word. My mom would tell us all the time. You know, we'd say, that's so unfair. You, you know, why are you doing this or that? And she would say, I'm going to stand before the Lord one day and I'm going to give an account. And this is my conviction is leading me to this answer on that thing. And, you know, I might be wrong or I might be, you know, too strict or I might be whatever, um, but I got to give an account to the Lord. And that's ultimately what I'm thinking about. So I, I got that always that this kind of higher calling is always what we're sifting our world through. Amen. It's interesting that you you sort of saw that as a young child with, you know, that thought process of um, why aren't they just telling us who to vote for? It's very interesting to to, to see that as, as a child. A lot of a lot of kids just sort of take all that in, you know what I mean? Yeah. So you were a believer from from a young age. I mean, did you did you ever stray from that or did you sort of always have that relationship with Jesus? Yeah, I'm kind of the proverbial good girl. Like <laughs> I never went through a rebellious stage and, you know, junior high or high school. I fought with my parents a few times, but like it, it was never over anything major and I never Never had major doubts about my faith. I came to Christ when I was nine um, at a Christian summer camp. And, you know, I was there as a camper and saw this skit that made me think about, you know, I my parents are Christians and I love Jesus, but I don't, I don't know that I've ever really thought about it as separate, like my own relationship with Jesus instead of just this is the, the, the family I'm in. We're a Christian family. Um, right. And so I, I was laying in bed one night and like actually like took my hands just like they had done in the skit and like put them towards my heart and then lifted them up. And I just like prayed, Lord, I think I am already yours, but I want to know for sure I have a relationship with you and I am yours um, and following after you, not just because my parents are followers. Um, so that's right. when I kind of see that as really owning that um Faith is my own. Um, and I had some difficult things happen uh, early in my life. So when I was uh, 15, I was in a, um, a terrible train accident uh, outside of Chicago. I was on a youth trip. Mm. Um, 
And 11 people were killed in that accident. Not any from my group, but it deeply impacted me. I was in the train car that hit into the car where the people were killed as the train derailed and cars were um, turning over and accordioning sort of. And so, you know, having that kind of experience at 15 and seeing, wow, you know, people died just, you know, 20 feet away from me. Uh, that could have been me. Why, why was that not me? Um, what I think it really gave me a sense of, you know, if I am alive and breathing today, it's because God intentionally has me alive and breathing today. And what, what does he want for me? What does he want uh, to use my life for in some way? Um, a few months after that happened, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. And she ended up living a couple of more years, but she passed away my sophomore year in college when I was 19. Um, And then just two years after that, my dad was diagnosed with cancer um, and passed away that same year. And so it was kind of, you know, I had in many ways this idyllic childhood, um, lots of happy memories, not a lot of, you know, trauma or anything like that. My parents had a wonderful marriage and we had a warm, loving family. Um, but then into my teen years, just seeing and living through these these difficult, um, you know, traumatic events of loss, of, of kind of seeing other people's loss and experiencing loss myself. Um, and really, I think that that solidified um you know, what, what my mom was always trying to, to put into me was look, look forward. Don't look for, you know, here, the here and now on earth, look, look up, look towards what has eternal significance, look towards, um, you know, our, our life here on earth is just a a breath compared to what is coming in eternity. And that, that continued to shape my heart. And I think ultimately what, what led me into foster care. Well, let's talk about the foster care. What made you sort of had that decision and what made you want to sort of get into foster care as a whole? Well, for a number of years, I had zero interest. I had like an anti-interest in foster right. care. <laughs> I definitely did not want to be involved in it. But when my husband and I got married, um, so I got married when I was 21, my senior year in college. And uh, it, within our first year of marriage, one day I said, you know, someday I'd love to adopt. And he said, yeah, I think I would too. Uh, and that was kind of that. We we didn't want to have kids at that point. And um, so, it, we, you know, a few years went by and uh, we had two boys by birth. Um, and we started talking about, you know, okay, what about this adoption thing? Are we going to pursue this? And so we felt like, okay, we're ready to grow our family, but we don't feel any kind of direction for adoption. And I had learned enough to know, you know, if, if I'm adopting a child from another country, I need to be committed to helping them make that transition into um, to honoring the culture of their home country and those kinds of things. Um, and so I just felt like I don't want to pick a country out of the air. I don't, you know, I want to, I want to feel like the Lord is somehow leading us somewhere. Not that we're just sort of like yeah. randomly, it just feels like a big thing. You're just randomly selecting a place to adopt a child from. It's just such a, a weighty decision. Yeah. Just spin the globe and put your right. On it, yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. It just feels like, oh, this, oh, this does not feel right. Um, and so we really just felt like, at a loss for what to like, how, how do we even begin to, to decide that? And so a friend of ours who worked at a 
children's home, like a residential children's home, just texted us one day and said, hey, I know you're real interested in, you know, adoption related things. I was helping lead an adoption ministry at our church at the time. And he said, you know, we've got these two little kids that really we think they would be better off in a like an in-home situation, not in the group home. Just wondering if you would know anyone who would be interested in in fostering privately these two children. So I sent it to my husband and I was like, hey, just in case you know anyone. And he was like, well, <laughs> I mean, are we interested? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, right here, you know. <laughs> right. So we we ended up deciding, okay, well, this, this feels kind of safe. We know the director. It's a private situation. Like this is, you know, okay, we could do this while we're trying to figure out this adoption thing. Well, it turns out that fell through. Those, they lost contact with that mother. They didn't end up needing that. But the Lord had used that to open our hearts to something we had never even mentioned before, which was foster care. And we began to feel like, you know, if we were open to that situation, maybe that was the Lord's way of just beginning to open that hardness in our hearts towards fostering through the state, which is uh, not a, uh, I mean, it's just a a much different experience than doing it through a private organization. And so that was the beginning for us of um, trying to get uh, certified. It took us a year to get certified to be foster parents. And our thought always was, we'll do this while we're trying to figure out this adoption thing. And maybe it turns out that the children we foster need an adoptive family and great, then we can be that family. And if they don't, we'll just be kind of pursuing this, figuring out what we want to do related to adoption and what we feel like the Lord is leading us to. Um, And so we did that and we got a call one afternoon out of the blue. We did not have our home study completed. Like they had come to do the interviews for the home study, but they hadn't actually given us the, hey, you're you're certified now. Um, and our worker called us and she said, uh, well, Mrs. Dent, congratulations. You are certified foster parents. And I was oh, like, oh, wow. Oh, well, that was well quick. <laughs> what? That's crazy. After like <laughs> trying to slog through this nightmare of paperwork. And she goes right into, and we have a two month old baby boy. Uh, and would you be able to take him this afternoon? <laughs> Oh my goodness. So it was, uh, it went from from like, I think we've got a few months left before we're even certified to, you know, can we be ready in four hours for a child? Um, And so we, uh, we took that little boy, we ended up adopting him. He was, um, he's eight now. He's my youngest son. um, And is such a blessing to our family. But the, the second child that we fostered is really the one who, was kind of this Damascus Road experience for me of beginning to rethink how we're approaching drugs and addiction. So big picture, the majority of children in foster care are removed for drug-related reasons. So in Mississippi, it's about 50%. Um, Some states, it might be a little more, a little less. But um, foster care is, you know, I heard it said one time, to care about orphans in Africa, you have to care about AIDS. They're just linked, the the problem of children without parents and the AIDS crisis in Africa. And I began to see that, you know, to care about foster care in America is to care about drug use and addiction and how we handle those things because it has such an impact on why children end up in foster care, why they're removed. So that was our our second foster child. We got a call for him when um, we had said no to a a bunch of different calls because my hands were full. I was homeschooling my two boys who were like six and four and I had this baby we were fostering and it was... I was just trying to keep my head above water. But when he was 18 months old, we got a call and my husband called me and he said, you know, I know we have said no to all the other children that they have called us about, but I feel like the Lord is just asking us to say yes 
to this child they just called me about. And I thought, well, that's easy for you to say because you're sitting at your office at work while I'm <laughs> while I'm here raising these children during the day and homeschooling and juggling all the things. Right. But you know, it was just really neat to see the ways that the Lord had prepared us uh, for that. So it was early December. Normally, December is like insane land, getting ready for Christmas. And every year I set this goal of I'm going to get all of my Christmas stuff done, you know, before Thanksgiving so I can just enjoy this holiday season. It had never happened before, even before I had children, like could never make this happen. <laughs> but for some reason this year, I had just told my husband a couple of days before, I was like, this is crazy. Like, it's crazy town around here. And somehow I have gotten all the Christmas shopping done and all the Christmas cards are out. And like, I don't understand this, but wow, this is great. Um, so I started thinking about that. I'm on the phone with my husband when he calls about this child and thinking, you know, maybe that was the Lord just preparing space and time for me to say yes to this. It was a newborn to have the bandwidth to be fostering a newborn and an 18-month-old and having my other boys in the middle of December. And that's what we ended up. We we called and got some more information and decided, yeah, we we can take this child. So he came to our house and I knew that he had been removed from his mom's custody because she had used drugs while she was pregnant. And for me, in my mind, I thought, well, that means she doesn't love him because what mom would use drugs while they were pregnant if they loved their child? I don't I don't have any category for that. And so I made the kind of deduction that that means she doesn't really love him. So he came to our house and he was there for a couple of days. And then I took him to his first visit with her at the local child welfare office. And I drove in the parking lot. I had all of my kids with me. I popped uh, the baby's car seat out of the car, turned around in the parking lot. Um, And typically you walk in and you end up meeting a parent in the visitation room. Well, I turn around in the parking lot and here comes this woman running across the parking lot, weeping. Oh, wow. And she runs over and just starts kissing her baby while I'm holding him in his little car seat. And my mind is kind of on fire. Like, what is happening here? My immediate response was suspicion. You know, uh, this, this can't be real. This is like, you know, this maybe she's just trying to kind of get me to put a good word in with the social worker or, and I had talked with her on the phone a couple of times. Um, we had decided to do that cause she really wanted updates on him things like that. Um, but I just, this, this hesitancy towards letting her be who she was and not who my stereotype said she was, um, mm. was just really strong. I kept just trying to put her back in that box of, you know, this is not someone like me. This is not a mom like me. She doesn't love her child like I love my boys. Um, and part of that, you know, Chris, part of that is this challenge for foster parents of we're opening our home to children. And so uh, in a way, it's almost like to be able to to survive that emotionally, you have to believe they're better off with you. Like it yeah. just, it's too difficult. It's difficult no matter what. It's just almost too difficult if you kind of let in this idea like, whoa, maybe, you know, maybe if the parent can deal with this situation, maybe they're actually better off with this, pa- with, with their birth parent than they ever would be with me. And that's a really hard thing to, to work through. So that's kind of in there as well as I'm trying to 
figure out how to process the situation. It's got to be a weird thing in the back of your mind as you're sort of pulling into that parking lot too, you know. I got to be honest, you know, so I've I've got a son. He's uh he's he actually just had his third birthday this past week and I know prior to that, I say this all the time, but prior to that, prior to him being born, I didn't I didn't get sort of touched when people had stories about their children and things like that. I mean, everybody says, oh, they change your life. They change your life. But you don't really realize that until you actually have that child. So I, I totally understand what you're saying. You know, just having having that uh, that in the back of your mind, like, what just happened when I just left that parking lot? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Totally, totally. So, so she has her one hour of visitation with him. Um, I take my boys to a local park so she can just be with him by herself. And I came back to pick him up. And I'll never forget the the picture in my mind of walking back into that visitation room. It's a tiny little room. There's a sofa that she's sitting on. It literally takes up an entire wall because the room is so small. Um, and she's just sitting there with her eyes closed, and he's sleeping on her shoulder. And she's just like, she's not on her phone. You know, she's, she is just like drinking him in for this one hour she gets with him. Um, And so I took him back to my house. She went to inpatient drug treatment, um, but her love continued and she would call me from drug treatment. She would call me once a day and ask for an update on him. You know, he's like brand new. He's like five pounds. There's no update. Like, you know, he's just, (laughs) he's eating and he's sleeping and that's about it. But she wanted to hear anything, anything that would help her sort of create this picture of his day and how he was doing. And, you know, did he like the bottle or did he like this pacifier, you know, whatever it might be. Um, And so she would ask me to put her on speakerphone and she would sing to him over the phone. I can still be sitting in my oh. kitchen holding my phone down by him while he was sitting in a little bouncy seat and her singing Jesus loves me over the phone to her son while he slept. And it just tore me apart. I I just uh I it was almost like I couldn't understand why I was having such a hard time with this. Like on the one hand I wanted to support her, that's what I was in foster care for. On the other hand, I just felt this friction between really embracing the the amount of love that she was showing for her son. Um, And the more that I got to know her, the more I saw this is absolutely real. This is uh, a mother who loves her son just as much as I love my three sons. And she is a mom like me. Um, She's struggling with a complex health crisis, but she is a mom like me. And I realize now part of the reason that was so difficult to embrace was that means some things. So if she's a mom like me, if she loves her son as much as I do, and if her struggle with addiction is this complex health crisis, well, for for most of my life, I've been supporting putting people like her in prison. So if, you know, and that's because I've had this idea that, you know, people who use drugs, people who struggle with addiction, they're bad people doing bad things. And where do bad people need to be? Well, they need to not be in my community. They need to be in jail um, or in prison. Mm-hmm. And so I began to think through these um, downstream impacts of what we're doing and wrestling with, would it be better for Joanne to be in prison and for Beckham, her son, to be growing up without her? Uh, and I could see in this family unit, no, what this family unit needs is 
every bit of the community's love and support to support her in her uh, journey into sobriety and to support this bond that is right now been severed through foster care. But as quickly as possible, we need to bring them back together again so that bonding can happen just like I wanted to bond with my own children when they were born. Um, and she was wanting to do the same thing. Uh, she even sent me uh, through the social worker. She like a day or two, maybe after Beckham came to our house, after he was released from the hospital, she sent me a little um, like stuffed animal. And she said, the social worker handed it to me and she said, his mom asked me to give this to you. She's been sleeping with it and she wants him to have it when he's sleeping so that he can still smell her scent. Wow. And it was just like, that's the kind of thing like me and my friends talk about of, you know, like wanting all of that bonding and wanting to, you know, hold our children or bond through nursing or, you know, whatever the thing is. And here is this other mother thinking through, how can I still bond with my son, even though I'm not present with him? Um, Just incredibly touching. And that, that started me on this journey of, you know, if I can see that this isn't that jail would not be the right approach for them. Um, I have to reckon with the fact that we are using that with thousands of people just like her um, in Mississippi, across the country, across the world. And what do I do with that? Uh, Is there a better way that we could approach addiction, that we could approach drugs that would have better outcomes uh, rather than exacerbating harm um, in a situation where there's already harm happening, and we want to we want to decrease harm to this family unit, not increase harm to them. You know, I'm sitting there thinking about this. They always say that it takes a village to raise a child, and you know, bring that community together um, and sort of coming together. You know, as I'm thinking of that, I'm thinking of, this is a very positive story and a beautiful story. But how many stories do you hear where that doesn't happen? Yeah. You know what I mean? That That's such a deep topic. And for I'm sure for every one, there may be another one that doesn't end yep. like that. But, but let's talk about your organization a little bit, End It For Good. So whereabouts, when did that sort of happen? I mean, was that because of your interaction with Joanne or, or how did that sort of come to pass a little bit? Yeah. So, um, so I met Joanne. That kind of started me on this learning journey of what can we do differently with drugs that would provide some better outcomes? Like certainly not perfect outcomes because we live in a broken world with broken people, potentially harmful substances. There's always going to be some harm happening until heaven. Um, but can we have less harm? And so that set me to reading. I'm a big believer that, you know, you should not make policy decisions just because you met somebody who <laughs> who changed your heart. Like you don't make <laughs> policy decisions just based on your emotions. Um, so I wanted to kind of like zoom out and say, okay, let me try to put everything I think I know about this on the shelf and and really try to learn, you know, what what is out there? How could we get better outcomes? Because we're getting poor outcomes right now. Um, you know, last year we had the highest overdose death rate in U.S. history. We have high rates of addiction. We have high rates of incarceration. Um, here in Mississippi, where I live, we have the second highest incarceration rate in the country. And our country has the highest incarceration rate in the world. So we have this kind of like massive amounts of harm on lots of um scales. And so what I ended up learning, which is ended up being uh, what I started End It For Good to invite other people into learning. Um, And I'll quick walk through it just so it'll give us a little framework to discuss what we do as an organization. Uh, So what I learned on that journey is when you talk about 
the harm that happens because of drugs, it really falls into two categories. Um, you have the harm that can happen from like what drugs can do to your body. Um, but then there's also all of this harm that comes from the policies that we have around drugs. So um, the policies that criminalize those substances, make them illegal. So when you criminalize uh, like the market for something who's, you know, producing and selling something, um, when you criminalize the market for a popular substance, that market doesn't go away. It's not that no one sells those drugs anymore, uh, even something like marijuana or heroin. You can get those anywhere. But but legal businesses don't sell them anymore. They're not allowed to. So it moves underground where only criminal organizations can produce and sell those substances, which ends up creating lots of crime because crime is really lucrative now. You have this huge underground drug industry that's worth somewhere between, you know, 500 and $600 billion a year globally. And the only people who can get a piece of that massive pile of money are people who are going to break the law. And you can get more of that pile of money if you're willing to be more violent, because that's the only way. How do you, uh, you know, stake out your claim to a certain corner in the city? Well, you got to take the other guy off the corner if you want to get that corner. Um, you can't take him to court. You can't say, hey, he's impinging on my territory. <laughs> so you just settle that on the you street. You can't call the cops, right? <laughs> Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So you have this massive underground market that's creating crime and violence, uh, and it is funding crime and violence. So all that money is going to criminal organizations who are using it to buy guns and buy ammunition and buy, you know, in different parts of the world, buy tanks. And it's going to terrorist organizations who are it, and it's not because they're particularly interested in drugs. It's because it is a huge industry that's been forced underground. Right. And so it's a perfect opportunity for them to make money, which they want to make because it allows them to do all sorts of other things that they want to do that we don't want them to do. If you want a law law and order kind of society, you don't want to be funding criminal organizations, which is what this ends up doing. Criminalizing drugs ends up providing all of that consumer money to criminal organizations. So it's really kind of brought home to me. I was talking with a man who um, had his, he grew up in the United States, but his mom grew up in Colombia, the country of Colombia. And um, we were talking, this was during COVID. And so we were on Zoom and he leaned forward and he showed me the necklace that he was wearing. And he said, you see this? And it was a little cutout charm of the country of Colombia. And he said, this was my mom's um, necklace. His mom passed away of cancer a couple of years ago. And he said, um, he flipped it over and he said, you see the, the inscription on the back is her blood type. And when she was growing up as a little girl in Colombia, the violence from drug cartels was so great that even though her family was not involved in the drug trade at all, the government encouraged their citizens to have their blood type somewhere on their person. Because so many people were getting wow. caught up in just the collateral damage of cartels fighting each other. We're so used to that now. We're just, well, you know, there's lots of violence from these cartels. Why is there so much violence from those cartels? Why, where are they getting those guns? Where are they getting the money for all of those, all that ammunition? Where are they getting the money to fund this whole criminal enterprise? And what are they fighting over? Well, the vast majority of it is this underground drug market. Um yeah which is a choice we have. Will we continue to allow it to be owned by gangs and cartels and terrorist organizations? Or will we allow these substances to be sold in legal regulated markets where, 
you know, if a business is breaking the law, they can be prosecuted. And just like a, the alcohol drug market, alcohol is a drug, you know, you don't have the, the head of Budweiser, you know, toting guns down to, you know, Heineken or whatever and, and taking them all out. <laughs> um, they operate in a, in a legal business, liquor stores. They don't go, you know, shoot each other up on the weekends. Um, it's just a legal regulated business. And that doesn't mean there's no harm from alcohol. Certainly there is. Uh, but there's the harm from the market is not there. We're not funding you know, gangs and cartels through the alcohol market. So you have this, this market harm that happens from criminalizing substances that creates crime and violence. And then you have the, this contamination problem, which is particularly important to understand our overdose crisis right now. So we've been cracking down on prescriptions over the last couple of years, the last like 10 years or so. Um, and we've done a really good job in terms of fewer prescriptions prescribed to people. If you look at how many prescriptions are being written legally. And yet the death rate has just continued to spike. And so it's a combined challenge. Part of the challenge is when people can't get legal prescriptions, if they're already addicted to a substance, they're going to move to the underground market and get the substance illegally. Um, So you have some people migrating to the underground market because their doctor won't prescribe them the medicine or the, you know, substance they were already dependent on. But you also have the second wave of harm that's coming from contamination. So when you go like to a liquor store, you have a bottle that says, you know, whatever proof on it, you know exactly how much alcohol is in it. It has an ingredients list on it. You know what you're getting when you go to the liquor store. When you go buy a drug on the street, you you have no idea. I mean, it maybe it's what you think it is. Maybe it's not. You don't know how strong it is. You don't know if, you know, it's is it going to get me high or is it going to kill me? Um, do I need to take, you know, uh, a third of this bag, the whole bag, an eighth of this bag? Like, it, j- there's no way to dose appropriately because there's no regulations around it. There's no um, quality control. It's just whatever somebody happens to be selling you. Yeah. And now, you know, there's pill presses that can make pills look exactly like a legal prescription, um, but they're not. They're pills that have other things in them. So we have massive amounts of people who are dying from fentanyl poisoning. Um, fentanyl is an incredibly strong opioid. Um, a synthetic one. So it can be, you don't have to have an opium poppy to make it. You can manufacture it in a you know, factory or anywhere like that. Yeah. So th- the majority of overdoses today are happening from fentanyl contamination. And it's it's not because fentanyl is so um, deadly on its own. So my youngest son, the one we were talking about, my eight-year-old, mm-hmm. um, he cut his finger really badly when he was four. And we had to take him to the ER to get it stitched up. So we take him into the ER. Um, he's crying, of course. And the nurse comes in. And she she's got this little syringe, and she says, "Hey, I've got um, I've got some fentanyl for him, and it's just going to take the edge off that pain and get him ready for the resident to put the stitches in." So here, you know, we have forty year old men who are dying of fentanyl poisoning, and you're giving a you know thirty five pound four year old fentanyl. Wow. Why is he not dying? Well, yeah. because fentanyl is used in hospitals medically. Because it's quality controlled every day and you can give it to a four-year-old and it can be helpful for him. But if you, if it's out on the street and people don't know what they're getting, then it can easily kill them because it is 
really potent. So the contamination problems are there, not because people want to use contaminated drugs, but because if we don't allow them to access a legal, uh, it sounds like I'm saying illegal, a legal option, uh, they will buy a contaminated option on the street and more and more and more people um, are dying. So those things along with this kind of you know, I got interested in it on the consumer side. You know, what are we doing to people who are using drugs? People like Joanne, the mother of our foster son. But the more that I learned, the more I realized, oh, there's actually a, a lot more to this picture. When you talk about criminalizing substances, it's it's not just criminalizing the people who are using them, people like Joanne. It's also causing tens of thousands of people every year to die from Uh, contamination, and it's causing massive amounts of crime and violence around the world. Um, And we're kind of losing on every front. It's amazing. You know, I was I was watching something the other day talking about the amount of fentanyl that can actually kill you. And it was one of these documentaries that was explaining the entire drug problem and the creation of the drugs they were doing. And they were talking about they had this big bucket. I mean, a five gallon bucket full of whatever they were creating. I don't know what it was. And then they they the reason they use the fentanyl is to cut cut the product to make more uses of it so that it's not um, so that it's you're not getting pure. It's basically to cut the product to make it as go as far as possible for these people to make money. They don't care about the people actually using the the product. And it was they had this five gallon bucket, like I said, and it was literally it was like this little chunk like that big. It was like nothing. And they were like, this is so deadly <laughs> in this this little piece in my hand right here is so deadly it could it could literally take down yeah. an entire person it's crazy and that and that is so prevalent nowadays i mean you hear about all these celebrities that are dying because of fentanyl overdoses yeah and yeah I it's mean, really tragic it is and i what i what i want for people to do when they hear that is to is to take that one step up the river and say why? Why are they using drugs that are contaminated with fentanyl? Why? Mm. Why is that what they're getting? And yeah. and not. Uh, I think what we have done for decades is we have a new drug that comes on the scene, and we say we got to crack down harder on it. We just got to try to like stop people from providing it. But just like you saw in that documentary, fentanyl, you can produce a small amount of it, and it can go for you know it can get tens of thousands of people high. Um, yeah. And so you, but the, the, the reason for that is the same reason why, um, you know, if you go to like a football stadium where people are drinking alcohol on the outside, but it's prohibited on the inside, you, you know, you see people drinking beer on the outside and they start drinking hard liquor on the inside. Um, and it's, it's not because they don't want to drink beer while they're, watching the game they do but when you have to smuggle something you need it to be in the smallest package possible and yeah. so fentanyl provides a way to to cut other drugs in a way that allows them to be packaged in smaller packages um, which makes it easier not to be detected so it's it is a it is a purely business decision um, and it's a business decision that regular consumers can understand because a lot of people do the same thing <laughs> when they go to yeah. a sports stadium. They smuggle in their flask of liquor. They're responding to the incentives of prohibition by trying to get a more potent package so they can get the biggest punch in the smallest package. And they're not going to smuggle one beer 
they're going to smuggle a flask of liquor because it's going to last a whole lot longer and yeah. get them intoxicated for a much longer period of time. You know what's hilarious to me? I, it's it's like funny, but it's not funny. You know, we've been having this conversation and the first thing we have is, oh, I grew up in this Christian household. And then the next like 10 minutes right. later, you're talking about, you're talking about no, your extensive knowledge <laughs> of the drug market and everything like that, you know, but I mean, that's actually, that's that, like I said in the beginning, that's one of the things that I loved about your TED talk is you had to have this sort of, um, a change, not just a change of heart, but a change of mindset going from that, what I learned as a kid, what I was raised and what I, what I learned in my walk with Christ and, you know, oh, well, as a churchgoer, these are the type of decisions that I make. These are the type of, this is the way that I think. And then that impact of someone else coming into your life and it sort of changed your mindset a little bit. I mean, I, I really think that's just um, a very deep, you know, core, core mindset change that, that I'm really impressed with from, from everything that I'm hearing from you. Um, so how did that sort of come to pass a little bit with, with that change? And, and also, do you have any advice for someone that may be dealing with a situation like this as to how they can change the way that they think to affect the people around them. Yeah. Um, so I started in it for good. Uh, back to your question from 20 minutes ago. Um, I started in it for good because I wanted to invite other people onto this journey of learning. Um, so, you know, I'd, we've been talking for 30 minutes and I'd, I can talk about this in a short amount of time, but it was, was a two-year process for me of learning, reading, talking with people, trying to understand these things um, because it felt like the rug getting pulled out from under me. This is, it is not fun to change your mind. It's not fun yeah. to come up against something that challenges what has previously been, you know, sort of this core belief. And I say a core belief, not because I was like, thinking about my support for tough drug policies, but just because it was sort of part of the air I breathed. Um, and so anything that feels like, whoa, this is like part of part of who I am in some way. It's part of the way that I think. It's part of the way I make sense of the world around me. When that gets challenged, um, there's definitely a feeling of like fear of where is this going to take me? If I really kind of trace this to the point where I understand what's happening, what is that going to mean for me? Um, and as I began to learn um, about kind of the, the harms of prohibition um, that I, I have a, a very clear memory of thinking, if I change my mind about this, does this mean like, I'm not a Christian anymore. Like, oh, I don't feel yeah. like it means that because I actually feel like I'm, I'm trying to determine what is a better expression of my Christian beliefs, of my belief in the absolute value of a human life, of every person being made in the image of God and of infinite value and worth of families being a core part of a, a God's good part of this world and of uh, stable societies. And so um, I, I remember that feeling of just feeling like, you know, I, I, I think I'm trying to follow God in this, but I somehow also have this feeling that like, you know, are people going to say, well, you've just lost your faith. You know, you're not even faithful to the Lord anymore. You, um, and so it, it was helpful to me to kind of 
begin to pull apart, okay, there's there's two things happening here. And this is what I would encourage people because there's probably people listening. Some of them have like a really high heart rate right now. They're like, this is insane. <laughs> she is nuts. And I need to tell her why. Um, so what I would encourage people, particularly if they're feeling like, oh no, if she comes out saying, you know, to be a good Christian, you've got to support, you know, allowing substances to be legally sold. No, I would separate. So I feel like God did did two things in my heart. One was changing my heart, which needed to be changed. I was yeah. able to cut off my sense of the image of God in whole groups of people. People who use drugs was one of them. And I would have said, I'm a very empathetic person. I feel people's pain very deeply. And yet I could sort of cut that off. If we talk about someone addicted to drugs or someone whose you know, child is in foster care, well, not them, but, you know, everybody else. And so I needed the Lord to break my heart of that uh, judgmentalness, to be able to see them as he sees them and to be able to see the the root causes of that addiction was another piece. It would be great for us to talk about because that really reshaped my thinking about the best way to handle addiction. Um, so part of it was this changing of my heart and convicting me of my own sin of um, being willing to discard people just because they had made mm. decisions I didn't like. Um, yeah. The other part was, okay, then what does that mean for the kinds of policies that I want to support? So, and I think Christians can have very um, sincere disagreements about the way that we see the values we have played out in policy. And I, I think, um, you know, God is, is, much bigger than uh, the last, you know, however many years of American policymaking. And so yeah. I try to kind of separate yeah. those to say, you know, we can we can agree on the outcome, the goal, the values we want to see expressed. And we we may disagree on the pathway we take to get there. Um, but I definitely think that for us and for for the church, that we have a lot of work to do on the way that we talk about addiction. All right, Misfits, that's the end of this first part of the episode. And no, it's good, right? Be sure to come back next episode for the conclusion of Christina's story. As always, I want to thank you so much for listening. And thanks again to our sponsors. If you want to support any of the sponsors of this podcast, there are affiliate links on the sponsors tab of our website over at www.misfit-heroes.com. You can also find links to all of our social media there. So be sure to follow us for immediate up-to-date info about the podcast. Please, if you enjoyed this podcast and you want to help me out, do me a favor. Hit the subscribe button down below so you're notified of new episodes as they're released. And make sure to leave a rating or review of the show on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Truly, Misfits, I love you. Thank you so much for listening. And until the next time, be kind, love one another, and be a hero.